Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. There was no expert um, for Assist America that came into trial and said the doctors in Mexico did a good job. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? I understand you had uh, not great rest this weekend. I, <laughs> I, I know how insulting this is to new parents to say this because <laughs> I have not had kids, but I, I feel like I brought home a newborn from the hospital and I'm like, I, I brought it. I have a puppy. I have an eight week old puppy. And I feel like I, I did not sleep. She's sleeping like a baby right now. I did not sleep at all. Um, and I feel it way over my head and like, what have I done? <laughs> Well, you sent me a video and it'd be great if we could put a video on the website, but it's so it, her name is Nasha, right? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and she's a Shiba Inu. She's a Shiba Inu. So she's very, she's very in right now for uh, crypto, but I did not know that at the time. <laughs> I did not know that till I was Googling like best, some, you know, like best harness for Shiba, not best harness, but things that weren't like overtly dog related. And then I started getting all this stuff about people buying uh, crypto. You're like, why, why is everybody buying Shiba Inus right now? They're so <laughs> yeah, popular. It was, like, yeah, it was like the, it was like price of Shiba Inus. And I was like, why is this like, <laughs> thing? um, anyway, yeah. So I'm super sleep deprived, but we're, I'm going to try to keep it together. I mean, but to, to be honest, if we can put the video up, I mean, she is the cutest puppy that, uh, that I've seen. So she's super cute. Uh, I'll get her to put on some great trial podcast swag. And then, uh, we're uh sit you know drink out of a mug or something right yeah exactly yeah get, get, <laughs> the use, the, use the mug as the as the uh as your dog bowl yes um well anyway um you everybody our regular listeners know i love to talk about myself on the podcast but it's not about me unfortunately <laughs> instead it's about our much more impressive guest um we have patrick Arns on the show today patrick thank you for joining us Hey, thanks for having me. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like it. <laughs> well, we are so excited to talk about this case. I'm really excited about it, Steve, because it's really outside of, of the types of cases that we've talked about. It's it's completely different um, and and just really interesting reading these materials. Um, so before we talk about the case, let me tell our listeners a little bit about Patrick. For those who don't know him, he's a partner at Robbins Kaplan in Minneapolis. And you can look him up at robbinscap.com. That's R-O-B-I-N-S-K-A-P-L-A-N.com. Um, Patrick has a lot of fantastic awards, especially at his age. He was um, Minneapolis St. Paul's business uh, business journals 40 under 40 list um and i it's such a bummer aging out of 40 under, under <laughs> yeah 40. right exactly um going for that 50 under 50 50 under 50 <laughs> why isn't that a thing um he was uh named a minnesota attorney of the year in 2018 and he is one of the on the world's leading patent professionals list so you can already tell he's got some areas of expertise that are different than a lot of our other guests um he really specializes in multi-million dollar intellectual property business lawsuits where he's kind of fighting for sometimes companies, um, innovators, artists, uh, uh, and others who who might be sort of the little guy compared to who they're suing. Um, 
but he handles all kinds of, of high stakes uh, cases for diverse um, types of clients, diverse types of cases, like the one that we're going to talk to uh, talk about today. Um, but before we get there, I want to highlight something that that um, Patrick has said is really important to him and that he's put a lot of effort into. And that was he was previously the, the chair of his firm's um, pro bono committee. And um, he said that that's one of the things that he's most proud of when I was digging for dirt on him online. Uh, and Patrick, I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about um your pro bono work and, you know, give it to the hard, give it the hard sell to people who maybe aren't involved in it as much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really sort of a, a cultural aspect of our firm. You know, our firm has been around for over 80 years and um, pro bono work has, has always been an important part of it. And so um, it's, you know, to me being a lawyer um, doing pro bono work is, is really um, not just a, a, a privilege, but a responsibility. And so at Robbins Kaplan, you know, whether you're a, a first year associate or a senior partner, we expect everyone to contribute at least 80, excuse me, at least at least 50 hours of pro bono work. And um, that's a, a sincere commitment that, um, that we have across the board. That's awesome. It's it's such a great opportunity. And and I, you know, sometimes it can take you um, way out of your wheelhouse, um, you know, depending on if you go to these, some of these legal clinics and stuff, but it can be really good experience too. And, and um, really rewarding. I have, I get a lot of calls from my defense lawyer friends when they do pro bono work, because <laughs> then they're maybe helping the plaintiff instead. So then they're like, well, how does this work? You start things off. <laughs> well, and on that note, you know, I, I think it makes you a way better lawyer. Um, right. you know, I, I got some advice, you know, from uh, one of my law school professors uh, when I was starting practice. And, you know, I, I was handling a lot of IP cases and, and patent cases that are always in federal court. And he said, Patrick, you know, make sure you, you show up to the people's court too. And I think just having both a perception of all the different types of cases that go on in courtrooms across the country and then also the, the sort of flexibility to handle a lot of different areas of law and be able to, to kind of understand, OK, you know, what are the elements of this type of a case? What do I need to prove? Um, and you do get outside of your comfort zone um, in all respects. And, and it, will, it will definitely pay off, I found, you know, in terms of your development of, of being a lawyer in, in other areas as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's such good advice because I think we can a lot of times lawyers are overachievers and they don't want to do anything that they're not good at or, or that's not in there um, that they know they're not going to excel at, but that's, you know, that's how you grow. Um, well, anyway, the other thing I wanted to mention, and I was going to say that this was a really recent award, but then it was July, 2021. So I'm like, that feels recent, but it, it really is not that recent. But in um, July 2021, Patrick was named to um, the Bloomberg Law. They've got next 40 under 40 list. So nice. I just want to rub his age in one more time. Well, that one right. I snuck. I, so I turned 40 in August. So that one was my last ditch effort. To <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's a big one. That's a big one you got in right under the wire. <laughs> well, and, and I, you know, speaking of the pro bono work, I mean, under Patrick's, uh, under Patrick's leadership, his firm's pro bono uh, um, section was named as the fourth best pro bono section in the country, which is, uh, is, is great. And he won the uh, pro bono publico award in 2018. But what I noticed, and, and this goes along with his many awards that he's uh, won for being under 40. And unfortunately, he's not under there, but he was named to the 40 and under hot list. 
sorry. I'm sorry. I missed that one. I'm sorry. That Patrick. was by, by benchmark <laughs> litigation. I thought, you know, when I saw 40 and under hot list, I was like, wow. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we, we will stop um, bragging on Patrick, but yeah. again, <laughs> we are so glad that you're here today, especially to talk about this verdict, which you got um, pretty recently. Um, so that's always fun to talk about a timely verdict and verdicts in the time of verdicts and trials in the time of COVID. Um, so I'm going to tell the listeners a little bit about the case. Um, and there's a lot going on here, going through the pleadings that you sent um, and the opening and closing. So um, there's a lot of uh, questions that I'm going to have for you to kind of flesh th things out. Um, but as a brief overview, um, the case is uh, Richard H. Is it, uh, you know what? I didn't ask. Is it Tolan or, or Tholen? Or it's Tholen. Dolan, um, um, MD versus Assist America Incorporated. Um, Dr. Tholen was a uh, Twin Cities, Minnesota plastic surgeon, is a, a, a Twin Cities uh, plastic, uh, Minnesota plastic surgeon. And in April of 2015, he was on a zipline course in Mexico and he struck his knee on, um, on a platform and he, and he dislocated his knee. Um, but as, um, I don't know if maybe this is just a, a perk that he was eligible for because he was a physician, but he was a member of the American medical association. Um, and as part of that, there, um, is this, uh, feature or a service called assist America that offers emergency medical evacuation services. And there's a lot, um, that this, company assist america promises to deliver if you are in an emergency medical situation um in and you're abroad you're somewhere internationally where the the medical care that you're getting does not uh, meet the standard of care that we would have um here in the u.s so he had this option available to him when he dislocates his knee and um he goes to the local hospital and um Lots of crazy stuff happens there, including the fact, you know, that he's got a dislocation and they put a hard cast on the dislocation. Well, um, what, Yvonne, you got to go talk about the part how he had his friend relocate his knee while he was still out there. <laughs> that's I mean, I was just yeah. thinking about that. I was like, that sounds like excruciating. Oh, and he's also he. Uh, well, yeah, he's also not given any narcotic pain medication at all at the hospital. Um, but anyway, so he gets there and the situation is not comforting, to say the least. And he's a doctor. So he kind of, you know, he knows we we always talk about how scary it can be to be in the hospital. But he's also in the hospital abroad and he's a doctor. So he's picking up stuff that maybe your average person would not. Um, so he tries to um, take advantage of uh, his his member, his American Medical Association membership, and he contacts um, Assist America to to get him back to the U.S. so that he can get appropriate medical care. Takes more than 35 hours for an actually licensed physician um, to evaluate his request and his injuries. And they deny him um, emergency and medical evacuation. So as a doctor, as a smart guy, he he basically he and his wife arranged to get back to Minnesota themselves. Um, by the time he gets back, it's roughly two days after um, his, in his injury was initially suffered. And 
he's evaluated by doctors in the US and it turns out that he's got a significant blood clot and it eventually requires um, above the knee amputation on, on May 18th, 2015. Um, so we're going to talk more about how Patrick proved this to a jury, but you know, the main allegation here was number one, this is something that should have qualified him for medical um, evacuation. And number two, that delay and that, that refusal to do that is what caused him to need an above the knee amputation, which is obviously significantly life altering. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the defenses. So I'll, I'll sort of um, save that for now, the defenses in the case, but uh this was tried in November 2021, so um, very recently in the dist in district court in Minnesota, and the jury assigned $10 million in punitive damages to assign America, finding that they acted in deliberate disregard for the safety of others. Uh, but they weren't done there. They went on to award Dr. Tholen $4 million for past harm, um, over $10 million for I should say 4.2-ish 4, 4 for, for past harm, 10.6-ish for future harm, and $3 million for the breach of contract committed by um, Assist America for a total of over $27 million, $27.8 million awarded by the jury, which I think is the largest personal injury verdict in, in Minnesota and obviously a very significant, um, significant award there's so much to talk about and I have so many questions for, for, for you, Patrick, but I think what I really want to start and Steve kind of pointed to this a little bit is the picture of what real, the more in-depth look of what, of what Dr. Tholen really went through in terms of his injury and that experience at the local hospital in Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this was, you know, one of the, the most important parts of the case was was trying to recreate to the jury, you know, that that Dick Dolan's going through the, the most stressful event in his life, you know, and he, he's in a in a country where he doesn't speak the language. Um, he he has some, you know, kind of basic, you know, medical you know, knowledge as a doctor, but he's not a, a vascular surgeon. He's not an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and he's seeing things going on that, that don't seem right. Um, and he knows things are serious. And so, um, you know, to, to me, always, you know, one of the important parts of the trial was going to be, um, you know, showing the jur jury that kind of level of vulnerability, um, because he presents so credibly, he presents so um, confidently. And um, I think it was really important to, to kind of show that in that moment, he was the patient. He wasn't a doctor. He was a patient. And it was a, you know, he was in the middle of a crisis. Um, and in fact, one of the first, the first email he sent to, um, to assist America, he ended it with, I'm not too shy to say I'm scared. And, and that's actually how I, I kind of introduced the case to the jury. Yeah. I was just going to mention that in your opening statement, the very first thing that you said to, uh, to the, the jury was I'm scared. And, uh, and I thought that was just an incredibly effective way to bring the jury, you know, right to where, Dr. Tholen was, you know, when he's got this severe leg injury, um, you know, in, in reading it is you know, not only does he I mean, he has sort of a, a working knowledge of the anatomy and what he needed to do. And that's why he was able to talk his friend through basically repositioning his uh, his leg into the joint 
uh, when they were out in the field. Um, but when he gets to the hospital, he, as you said, he doesn't speak the language. So he, he doesn't really have a good idea of what the doctor's saying to him. And the doctor doesn't have really a good idea of what, uh, of what Dr. Tholen is saying. And then he puts this, uh, this cast on this, this hip to toe, a hard cast when, you know, the doctor knows enough that there's going to be swelling, uh, that that could cut off circulation to his leg. Um, and so, you know, all of these things, uh, you know, and, and, and we, we can kind of walk through the story, but I mean, eventually when the, when the doctors down in Mexico decide that they want to get that cast off, they can't even find the right tools to get that cast off. Um, you know, and, and at the same time, I mean, one thing we didn't point out is that in the meantime, after this cast had been put on, Dr. Tholen is actually able to talk to a orthopedic surgeon in Minnesota and, that orthopedic surgeon tells him, you know, two important things. One is get the cast off Two, get back to America uh, so you can get the, the proper care. So when it comes to what Assist America should have done, that kind of sets the tone right there. Of it, it, it was clear that a medical doctor, an orthopedic surgeon said, not only do you need to get that cast off because he wasn't getting the right care, but he needed to get back home. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know you, you mentioned we'll talk about their defenses later on, but, you know, they tried to kind of create Assist America in trial, tried to create this narrative that he wasn't following medical advice. And, and you know, and I think several inconsistent kind of type arguments, but, but one of the arguments was he should have stayed, you know, in Mexico and gotten care there. Um, and the the reality of the testimony of the evidence, especially coming from Dick Dolan, was one, they're totally incapable. Uh, the, the facilities and, and people he was seeing were totally incapable of treating the seriousness of his issue. And two, he was following medical advice. He, he got uh, medical advice from a board-certified orthopedic surgeon in Minnesota saying, get the cast off. And Steve, just like you said, you know, get back to the United States. Because um, you know, the, the idea of putting a hard cast on a soft tissue injury like that you know, was basically per se malpractice here, here in the States. Um, as it was happening, you know, you mentioned Steve, you know, that there are significant language barriers, you know, um, the, the first doctor at the first uh, clinic, you know, didn't speak English. Big Dolan doesn't really speak Spanish. And, you know, he, as he was talking it through and thinking it through, he was thinking the doctor was going to kind of buy about the cast, you know, to allow the, the swelling to expand. Um, and yet keep the, the leg stable. And, and basically he was waiting for the, the doctor to come back with the, the cast cutter to, to bivalve it and 20 minutes, 30 minutes went by and realized no one's coming back, you know? And yeah, I was, you know, kind of, um, that kind of heightened the, the, the sense of concern for, um, for Dick Dolan. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now 
Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. One of the things that you had sent us to prepare for the episode was uh, the one of the... Um, I don't know how many times you amended it, but an amended complaint that was really detailed and really set forth um, uh, uh, such a great overview of the case. But uh, it it was it was very detailed in all the different ways that that Assist America had failed, all the different ways that um, all the different experiences that your client went through. And I'm curious whether, you know, that was a strategic decision by you to to go back and amend, you know, cause you cite to, to discovery or things I assume you got in discovery. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that decision to go back and do such a detailed um, complaint when you amend it. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're kind of, um, I guess, two, two thoughts on that, Yvonne. Um, first, I, I think that's just generally, you know, kind of my style, you know, we, we, we like to try to uh, tell stories from the beginning in a complaint and, we try to be as detailed as possible and, and really create a narrative to, um, you know, to, to start that message from the beginning that we're storytellers, that we're trial lawyers. And, you know, we have a, a vision for how this case is going to go mm-hmm. and want to be as detailed as possible to, to kind of put, um, you know, put the defendant in a position right away to admit, deny, or as always happens, you know, say they, they don't, they don't happen to know what the answer is, you know, to the, the allegations. I think in, in the amended complaint you're referencing, it was it was a really interesting pretrial kind of development. Um, and I, I know those 
don't really get a lot of attention on your show. But in Minnesota, like I think many states, um, we have a state statute that prevents plaintiffs from pleading punitive damages at the start. And, and you need to seek leave and you need to make a, a certain showing um, before you can even assert punitive damages. Now, and so that, that was sort of the genesis of kind of um, the amended complaint and especially being as detailed with the sort of discovery materials is to, to make our best showing to the court. What's interesting is as we were doing that, um, this case is, is being handled through a diversity jurisdiction in federal court. And in the district of Minnesota, there's been um, a development of, of law that has kind of not applied that state statute anymore, kind of viewed it as sort of an eerie type doctrine. There was a, a U.S. Supreme Court that kind of served as a, a foundation, you know, for the federal courts here in Minnesota to say, um, no, this is really just an issue of amending a complaint under Rule 15 of Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and not a state statute. So you don't need to meet that heightened plead, pleading. Mm -hmm. And I think our case was around the second case, you know, where that, that trend really kicked in. And, and now it's, I, I, I believe, the majority approach in our district um, that um, that that sort of state statute won't apply in federal cases, which is pretty significant for plaintiffs. Yeah. yeah. OK, OK, gotcha. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I, I liked it because it, it really did tell um it really did tell a story. Uh, it was, it was really well written and, and, and organized. Whereas I think, you know, sometimes a complaint, you know, I've, I've drafted them. You're just like, I'm setting forth my elements and, and, you know, doing notice pleading and, and there it is. So it's always nice when you can tell a story, especially a story as, as compelling as this one to really flesh out, um, the experience. And so, um, one of the things that, one of the things that I wasn't sure about, although I think this was set out pretty well in your complaint, was the timeline of, well, let me back up. I was curious whether your client knew, you know, was it something that he knew he had these benefits of, uh, of from Assist America going in? It was something that he, you know, he considered a perk of membership or that when he traveled, he knew this was an option for him? Or was it something that it's kind of like, when something goes wrong, then you figure out what your options are. Yeah, great question. So um, both Dick and his wife, Sammy, were, were card carrying members of Assist America. So they had been members for, for over a decade, I think, and kind of recounted on the stand how every year they'd get, you know, kind of their, their flyer letter from the, the AMA, the American Medical Association, saying, you know, your membership in Assist America has been renewed. Here's your card. Carry it with you. And, you know, one one fascinating thing, you know, about Dr. Thone, he was a plastic surgeon and he and his wife, Sammy, had done a number of mission trips internationally to to help kind of underprivileged kids um, with cleft palates and, and other sort of plastic surgeries. So he had a, sort of a, a really extensive kind of set of trips um, all over the world. And in fact, he would always take his Assist America card with him on those trips. And so he was very much aware of it. Yeah. Uh, and and it was a con, you know, he literally kept it in his wallet um, whenever he traveled internationally. Gotcha. Yeah, so, I, go ahead, Steve. I was just going to say, I, I think, you know, um, it, and you did make that point in your opening and closing about how, about how he relied on this. And it makes sense because he would go he would do these mission trips, um, you know, to, to parts of the world that 
you know, likely don't have great medical care. Um, but I, I, I really think, you know, as far as talking about like what Assist America did in this case or didn't do, I think, uh, you know, um, it's important to, to know like how they hold themselves out to the public. And uh, we, in getting ready for this, I just went onto their website and watched their promo video that's like two and a half minutes long. And I mean, and they, and they basically make it sound like, you know, no matter what happens, uh, no matter how bad it is, no matter where you are, you know, they're going to be there for you to provide emergency services. And if necessary, if they're, if you can't get medical care where you are, then to get you out of there to someplace where you can. Um, and, and I, I, you know, and, and, you know, I think, and obviously you use that a lot in your opening and closing and in your cross examinations of just their own website of saying, here's all the things you say that you're going to do. And then when you're, you know, I, you, I think you had the CEO on the stand, their vice president on the stand, they basically said, well, you know, we really don't do all that stuff. We're more of just kind of like a travel services company. Um, and I, and I, and I did think it, I only read a little bit of the opening and closing of the defense in this case, but I did think it was kind of interesting that their tax seemed to be uh, sort of this argument of, well, you know, yeah, we, we say we do all this stuff, but I mean, come on, you know, you know, everybody knows you don't, we don't really do all this stuff. I mean, read the fine print. I mean, he, even the lawyer, even the defense lawyer may, he's like, if you read it really carefully, you'll see what we will really do. And it's kind of like, uh, is, is that your best defense? But, um, right. you know, so, <laughs> but that, yeah. that was sort of the gist I got from their, from their argument there. One of their main defenses was this is all this is, is a contract case. And, and we both had um, a contract claim, a breach contract claim, as well as a you know, common law negligence claim, kind of a professional duty standard. Um, but th- their main defense was, well, look at the contract. It's, it's all limited by the contract. And that was an interesting strategy because the contract is with between Assist America and the American Medical Association. It's not even something that was ever sent or provided to Dick Dolan or, or the members of Assist America. Um, and instead, what you know, Dick Dolan's getting are, are the, the flyers, the marketing materials that, that has sort of the, the language you're talking about, Steve. That said, you know, the, frankly, the standard in the contract by itself um, you know, we would have won, we did win the case on, on that as well. So it really, at the end of the day, didn't matter. Um, but, um, by all means, you know, pulling the the stuff off the website at trial and, um, you know, a number of the witnesses did really run either run from those statements or, or didn't know what they were, what those statements were. And that was (laughs) a pretty compelling point. Right. So, so talk a little bit about the, you know, sort of this timeline that happens, you know, so, you know, he goes to the hospital in in Mexico, they put this hard cast on him, you know, he talks to a doctor in Minnesota, and he basically says, get out of there. So it's at that point, as as I understand it, that he basically decides to, you know, get assist uh, America involved in helping, you know, he and his wife to get back to the country so he can get appropriate medical care. And then you sort of have this cast of characters, you know, that, that get involved in, and uh, either don't do anything or are giving wrong information and basically are just, you know, giving him the runaround and at the same time, just telling him, you know, no, we're not going to get you out of there. But talk a little bit about that timeline, because you, you did a really nice job of walking the jury through that, both in the opening and the closing. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be it would be funny if it wasn't tragic, you know, just in terms of the comedy of errors that that transpired. Um, but basically, so he's he's injured midday 
around noon or so on um, on a Sunday, April 19th. It, he's, you know, taken to the a first clinic. That's where he gets the cast on. He goes back to the, the hotel. He has the call with the, the orthopedic surgeons. Now it's late afternoon. And um, this is Mazatlan time, uh, mountain time. So it's um, a little bit later compared to central time or Eastern time. And um, uh, again, two, two pieces of advice, get the cast off and then get back to the United States um, as soon as possible. And so hang up the phone and it's like, all right, let's execute on the plan. And so um, he starts, he, he has, his wife goes down to try and find out, you know, a different clinic or hospital you can go to. Cause obviously the first one was no good. Um, and as she's doing that, he's typing out an email to assist America from the, with, with the email address on his card in his, in his wallet. That's detailing um, all the medically important facts to highlight that this is a grave concern, that it's a traumatic knee dislocation. Um, and, uh, you know, when, whenever anyone has a traumatic knee dislocation, you, you're going to have some sort of orthopedic issue in terms of ligaments or bones. But more importantly, many times, there's a significant risk of injury to the uh, popliteal artery and a, a potential injury to your vascular system. And so he's highlighting, you know, some, some of those um, elements that his, uh, the doctor in Minnesota had passed on to him in the email, pointing out he's scared. And then after he hits send, he then goes to the uh, second clinic or hospital in Mazatlan to try and get the cast off. And at, at this point, um, you know, still language barriers, difficulty getting, you know, the first doctor that sees them looks at them and basically says, you have a perfectly good cast. Why would we take it off? You know, and, and he's trying to convince them that they actually need to, you know, take it off. Um, finally convinces a second doctor. They struggle. They don't have the right tools. He, he and his, his wife's an, a former nurse. So she's helping. Uh, he's helping take, cut the cast off himself. It's painful. And um, finally get the cast off. And that's when they place their first call then to assist America. Um, and we're, we're just stunned because the reaction was, um, you're at a perfectly good hospital. Um, you, you don't qualify for our services. Yeah. So, so that, that first call, is that the one that goes to, um, Cliff Suku? That's right. And so in, you know, kind of the, the, the layout at that trial was sort of the hierarchy at assist America is, the, the first contact is, is sort of a, a medical coordinator, someone with some sort of medical background, um, could be a nurse, could be an EMT, they kind of triage, you know, what the color's complaining about. And then um, according to, you know, kind of the policies, they're supposed to take that information and then present it up the chain or present it to a consultant who's a licensed doctor to review and, and kind of assess the situation and assess the needs of the member of the patient. And, um, you know, Cliff Succo gets on the phone. We have the audio recordings of all this, which was just great evidence to bring people back in time to you know, what was actually going on. But um, he kind of pushes off Sammy, Dick's wife, and says, I need to talk to the treating doctor. And they get a, a translator on the phone. And the exchange is, is just a minute or so. It basically sums up to the same, you know, are you able to treat him appropriately? And the, the treating doctor says, yes, yes, of course. And, and that was about all the questions that were going to be asked. And, you know, with that, um, uh, 
came back and, and assured them that the Olins, that they were at a very good hospital um, that could provide all the necessary care. Which is just, it's crazy because you think, you know, the whole, the whole point is that, or one of the ways it's phrased in the Assisted America documentation is whether the standard of care meets the standard of care in the U.S. So if you ask, a, you know, somebody who is in a place that has a different standard of care, if the patient's going to be treated appropriately, of course, they're more than likely going to say yes. I mean, sure, I'm sure there's certain situations where it's a specialty thing or whatever, and they know they're not capable of it. But, you know, it's kind of like the whole point is that this this standard that they're going to get there wouldn't meet the standard that they would get in the U.S. And, and that's the whole pitch, you know, kind of of the of the services. Right. And, and they put that on their website, which is we're going to make sure you get a one. We apply even 100 percent U.S. standards of care. And it kind of I think when you talk to you know Dick Tholen, especially as a doctor um, coming from, you know, receiving this benefit through the American Medical Association, it, this was very reassuring to them, which is, you know, no matter where I am in the world, I'm going to get care, whether it's in the United States or not, but I'm going to get care that is the same type of care you would expect here in the United States. Yeah. And this uh, this medical coordinator that they first talked to, I mean, one of the you, you sent us your PowerPoint from the closing. And one of the things that you pointed out about him, one, one I think, is he, he had didn't finish college, but then had gone to a, a medical school over in Hungary and then uh, took a took the uh, medical boards here in America three times and failed it three times. So he was not a licensed physician. But when he was on the phone with Sammy, uh, Dick's wife. He told her that he was a, a, a doctor. Um, and so that gave her some, you know, reassurance, which uh, would which was not warranted. And then the other thing that I think we haven't mentioned about um, Assist America, which which, uh, you know, according to their website and you pointed out, it has 40 million members. Um, and to take care of those 40 million members, they have two licensed physicians they're independent contractors to actually review the cases for 40 million members. Um, and, and, and by the way, in this case, one of them was going on vacation and didn't have time to respond. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, again, we had the call logs and we, you know, there's a, a period of time he was actually traveling from the East coast to the West coast with a stop in between and it wasn't like he had an out of office message on. Um, so the the this was on the second day when the Tholins called back asking for help again. Um, the second coordinator tried to elevate it to this kind of consulting doctor and couldn't get through. And and hours went by. And you know, and and this will be you know relevant on the causation side because we're now pushing the time frame of when this is really we know kind of in retrospect really pushing an issue of, of how urgently Dick Dolan needed, you know, appropriate medical care. And, um, and one, one explanation a system American never had at trial was what, why didn't you call the other guy? You know, right. you, you yeah. get a hold of the first one. He, and, and at one point he, he even says I'm on an airplane or I'm about to board. So I can't talk to the treating physician and says, I'll, I can, I can handle this. I can talk in the morning. Um, and at no point do the folks at Assist America ever call the the other guy, the primary guy, to to get him involved. 
Um, I just I just want to mention quickly that Patrick's picture changed a little bit so that we could see his background a little bit better. Oh, and he's got a great view. It looks like maybe he's he's broadcasting from space, almost space. <laughs> well, you know, I tried to negotiate to do this in person because I woke up today in Minneapolis. It was about the wind chill is about negative twenty, and so I was trying to get some sun in in, in Georgia. <laughs> well, you are definitely welcome down here, and it, it's cold for us down here because uh, it was—I uh, think it was like 38 degrees this morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that, that is very tough on us down here in Savannah. I just want yeah. you to know, <laughs> um, Patrick. One of the things that I saw in your closing PowerPoint um, and in your closing was that you know you had kind of um, you had pulled up everything. That, I mean, the thing that can be so effective um, when you have conflicting testimony from people, people who have changed their testimony. And I know I saw that you had done that for you had a lot a lot um, for trial testimony. And I was just curious, because when when we can get a court reporter to do dailies, which doesn't always happen, depending on where you are, um, sometimes I I feel like especially as a newer lawyer, you have all these things that are going on and like I, I mean, don't tell the court reporters this because then they'd really be annoyed. But um, I'm sure they don't listen. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, they're like, we hear lawyers talk enough. <laughs> I, 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 I'm sure the next time Yvonne's in a deposition, I'm like, oh, nice podcast, Miss Godfrey. They're going to be like, oh, you want dailies, do you? <laughs> but but I do find it challenging sometimes to figure out when you're actually going to look at them. Um, you know, and sometimes you can you sometimes you know what you're looking for because you remember and you know what you want to blow up on clothes. But I was just wondering if you had, if you had any tips, is it something you always do? Do you have something to help me, Patrick, some advice? Yeah, it, it would be to, to get the help that I had, which were just two outstanding colleagues, Emily Niles and Jessica Gutierrez. Um, they were part of my, my trial team. And especially the, the weekend kind of the case went over two weeks and the first weekend in particular um, you know, we would sit down kind of as a team meeting and, and I try and relay conceptually, you know, what I thought were some some good points. But but they did the the heavy lifting on that and, and really pulled the, the best clips um, and um, and actually stayed up basically all night the night before my closing to make sure that the, the, the slides were perfect. And and so the credit really belongs to them. On that so, one. Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like digital law marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there 
and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. Back to the uh, Assist America part of it, I just wanted to kind of close out the loop of the story. Eventually, uh, the call by the Tholins gets elevated to um, a, a vice president, I believe. Um, the sort of He's sort of a business manager, you call him the money man, and, and he basically just puts the kibosh on the whole thing, say, we're not, we're not helping him travel, end of story, you know, essentially case closed, we're, we're done here. Um, is, is, am I stating that right? Basically how it happened? It, it, yeah, except it was even crazier in terms of how it came out of trial. So moments before that call to the, the vice president, um, who's no longer with the company, um, this third medical coordinator, this is now the third day after the injury. And this other medical coordinator calls, uh, he, he calls the the, the, the licensed doctor that's not on, not on vacation and starts to tell just the basic facts, like within a couple of minutes. And, and this licensed doctor is like, oh my gosh, you know, something around the knee, you gotta be, you gotta be really careful. They put a cast on that's terrible. I can understand why he wants to get out of there. And he said, I, I think we should get them um, to the back to the States where they really know what they're doing. And which is, you know, nearly a, a verbatim quote. And so the, the medical coordinator says, okay, well, Kip, you know, the, the vice president might want to talk to you about this. I said, okay, I'm available. So then the medical coordinator calls Kip, who's, who's driving into work. Um, and, and you're right, you know, he, he didn't have any background um, kind of with this case before, even though it had been going on for, for some time. And um, his reaction is, well, if we feel like they can, they can treat him down there and they didn't even know what surgery he needed. They didn't know what uh, medical care he had received at this point, but they kind of had in their mindset, you know, um, you know, based on that first call with, with Suko and the treating doctor that yes, yes, of course I can, I can treat them, that they weren't going to, you know, investigate it any, any further. And so um, the coordinator relays to the vice president says, well, you know, our, our doctor, Dr. Shaffrey is saying, you know, move them. And he's, he then says, well, um, it doesn't seem like there's any justification for that. You know, you need to talk to a, a third guy, a, what they call a chief medical consultant. And they say, don't, don't share Dr. Shaffrey's opinion with them. Um, just give them the facts. And then, you know, and if they disagree, then we'll get on the phone again. And the medical consultant, is that the guy who had the $549 PhD? Is that? Yeah. So what, what came out at trial was, um, you know, kind of his LinkedIn page had, uh, uh, a doctorate degree, a PhD in medical management from a university called Belford university. And it was something that, you know, I think myself included, you know, didn't think twice of, you know, at his deposition or anything like that. 
Um, and again, you know, one of my colleagues kind of took a second second glance at it, and it's it's a, a now a defunct online university. And we went to the Wayback Machine and introduced evidence that, you know, at the time frame when when this PhD was awarded, you could you could get one for five hundred forty nine dollars in in ten days based on life experience. <laughs> and that, and and this was their medical consultant who uh, who had who had uh, had this five hundred forty nine dollar degree. Yeah, the, his title at the time, I think it's been changed now. His title at the time was chief medical consultant, and he testified at his deposition, um, which we played a trial that you know the company relied on him for his medical experience. And how did how did he do in his deposition? You know, was he sort of. Uh, righteous about it? Did he melt down? Well, give, give us the dirt. <laughs> you, you know, I, I don't even have any because at, at that point, I didn't even, I, I hadn't even discovered, you know, kind of his background at that point. I glossed yeah. over it. I just assumed it was a regular, you know, probably shame on me, you know, in terms of not asking a, a, some better questions. Um, but, you know, as it happens, you know, even when they, the audio of his call you know, he was in favor of moving the guy to, so okay. you know, his, his credentials were, you know, kind of, um, they were what they were, but right. um, even he, by the time he got involved, he was like, we should get him to San Diego or Arizona, you know, where's the nearest way to get him to the United States. Gotcha. Um, go ahead, Steve. I was just going to say one thing we haven't really talked about is, is, is basically the medical, uh, causation here. I mean, my understanding of, of the way it was explained is this is the, and I'm going to screw up this pronunciation, but the popliteal artery that runs behind the knee and basically is the blood supply to the lower leg and the foot, uh, that if that gets injured, um, then it can clot and basically cut off the blood supply. And if it cuts off the blood supply, your foot and your leg will start to die. And, um, and you have a very I mean, a, a shorter window in order to do uh, surgery in order to repair that, which ultimately is what happened to his leg. I, I guess one thing I was wondering, um, how much of the how, how much of, of a I guess the sort of causation defense was there in this case of saying, well, you know, the injury was so bad when he got it, even if we had gotten him here you know, a day or two earlier, um, he still would have had to have had his leg amputated. Yeah. And, and maybe see if I could just step back, you know, on, on the kind of um, the medical side. So when you have a traumatic knee injury, like a, a, a severe knee dislocation, there are really kind of two main risks to the popliteal artery. One is that it, it, it tears or is transected. And, and, you know, there you're just bleeding into, you know, your, your leg and there's not going to be blood kind of um, distributed, you know, throughout the, the vascular system. At, at, at that point, once there's blood flow that is stopped, you know, through the, the vascular system, you have about a six to eight hour window that's generally accepted to get that repaired, to do a bypass, to fix it. Otherwise, it's generally accepted you're, you're going to have an amputation. Um, so that, that's risk number one is, is, the, is the, the artery completely transected cut or not? Um, even if you don't have a complete transection, you can kind of still... Um, have an intimal tear or some intimal damage, kind of like a flap develop. And that's kind of what you were describing where over time that flap, you know, allows um, blood to clot and that, that blood continues to clot. As long as there's some blood flow though, you're generally going to be okay. I mean, okay in the, you know, 
essentially you're going to avoid an amputation. But the it, it becomes sort of a ticking time bomb because that clot's going to continue to grow, continue to grow, continue to grow. <clears throat> and then once it completely thromboses, you're in the same boat as if it was transect. You got a six to eight hour window. So one of the definitely the major issues in the case was going to be, um, you know, when did did his leg completely or his artery completely thrombose? Because we know when he got back to Minnesota, which was about three three days or so later, he had emergency surgery, um, emergency vascular surgery because he had a clot. So we know that, and we know um, on the the first day and into the second day that he. Um, did not have at least a complete clot because he was still getting pulses into his foot. And so that's really what our expert had to work with in terms of, you know, kind of, um, kind of figuring out, was there enough time to get him out? But also, you know, um, the, the defense at trial kind of shifted throughout the litigation because at first, you know, the, the first expert opinion was kind of what you were talking about, Steve, which was, man, this was a tragic injury. And more likely than not, you know, he he had a six to eight hour window. And, and even by the time he called the system, America, there was nothing we could have done had we you know, gotten him out of there. And, you know, frankly, you know, we had just um, an outstanding expert, a roster of experts. Dr. Ben Jackson at the University of Pennsylvania was one of them and, and kind of our lead expert. He's our, our first witness. And he had just uh, a thorough and. Um, frankly, devastating expert report that just detailed why absolutely, you know, um, at least in 24 hours later, his leg could have been saved. Um, and, you know, it was pretty powerful at trial when he said, look, I, I handle these types of cases. If he had come to me at this time, I think I would have saved his leg. Right. And so after once, you know, in, in terms of the disclosures, you know, time periods in, in court, you know, the expert opinion started to shift a little bit on Assist America's side and Assist America's experts who then kind of went to a different kind of view of, um, well, he actually got back in time for the vascular injury. And it was, it was a, a different type of injury, something called it, they, they called it a crush injury that um, you know, wasn't even vascular in nature. And at that point, that sort of shifting sands approach was, I think, problematic when they got to cross-examination. Well, not only is it problematic on cause on the causation, but I, I could also see it, it sort of hurts their liability argument where, you know, if it's a crush injury, shouldn't you get them back here to the U.S. even faster? I mean, it's, you know, it's right. a very serious injury. So, right. Yeah. But we, we also had the treating doctor on the stand and we just asked him, you know, because this was this kind of came up really late in the case, this idea of the crush injury. And I just asked, you know, this, this guy, the vascular surgeon here in Minnesota had done, I think, hundreds of amputations never, never amputated anyone's leg because of a crush injury. Yeah. You know, you're the one that treated him. Did he have a crush injury? Not at all. He had a vascular injury. You know, we had a picture of the clot. So, um, it was pretty, pretty strong evidence. Um, well, speaking of some of the defenses, um, one of them that I also think can't help, especially if you've sort of got these shifting expert opinions is basically it is not only to blame, um, Dr. Tholen for not following medical advice after this happens, but it sounds like there was at least a little bit, I don't know how much it was pursued. This was in, in one of the articles I read that, um, that, it, that blaming him for ba that he was, that he was being reckless on the zip line, basically that he was a big guy, that he was racing people, which I think is always a tricky move anyway, because you're like, well, that's not, 
you know, that's not really what the case is about. It's not, you know, it starts once the injury happens, but I was wondering how much, how much the, uh, they I mean, went there at trial. And I mean, isn't that what zip lining is for? I mean, you know, you go out there and have fun. More people get hurt. More importantly, that's what a system error is for. Right, exactly. And I did notice on their website, they say, you know, we're not going to, I mean, and I'm not saying there was alcohol related, but they say we don't have adventure sports exclusions. We don't have uh, alcohol exclusions. We don't have any of these. So it's like, even if that were true, they specifically said, we'll cover all of these things. Yeah, and, and there definitely wasn't any alcohol at play. It was just sort of a tragic kind of last run of the day um, circumstance. Um, but you're right, you know, in terms of the, the evidence we were able to put in a trial, you know, whether it's the contract or whether it's the website, um, you know, System Eric is there precisely in case an emergency arises, including from, as they put it, adventure sports. And so, Vance, you know, to get back to your question, um, I think they tried, you know, tried to lay that kind of as sort of an issue for the jury to kind of pick up on. They, they certainly tried to suggest an opening and closing you know, and, and kind of paint the picture that, you know, um, what he was doing was inherently, you know, an adventure sport or, or what have you, but I don't think it got any traction and, and certainly, certainly not when you, you look at sort of the, the website and, and the contract that, you know, unambiguously say, you know, we'll come help you if you get injured in, in one of those circumstances. One of the things that I wondered, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how much this came into play was, it was, uh, you know, how much of a comparative fault or apportionment type argument was there to the doctors in Mexico that they, you know, just didn't handle anything right? Did they try to do that? No, they didn't try to put the, you know, because they didn't, Steve. Um, and and they tried to do the opposite. They tried to embrace the doctors in Mexico and say, hey, you know, Dick Dolan should have just stayed there. They would have monitored him. He 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 would he refused admission. Um, as it turned out, you know, when we put Dick on the stand, when we put Sammy on the stand, you know, they they categorically denied, you know, all of those facts. It's, it's just not being true. They a doctor came in for the sole purpose to take off the cast and they sent him home. Um, they said, come back in 24 hours. And only after a system Erica wouldn't kind of come evacuate them, they they went back the next night thinking. Okay, if the, if the doctor tells me I'm stable, then Assist America will finally come get me. Um, so they again they they were following doctors, you know, um, advice both in Minnesota and, and even the the doctor in in Mexico. Um, so there was no um, and you know I made a big point of this in closing, but there was no expert um, for Assist America that came into trial and said the doctors in Mexico did a good job. No no one came in as, as a medical you know, expert and said what what they did to evaluate his injury was a, a U.S. standard of care or was proper. Um, and, and they certainly didn't say it, it fell below the standard of care. And I think that would have proved our case basically for us. So they were kind of forced into a, a hole of trying to kind of embrace um, sort of the, the medical care in Mexico, but they just didn't have any experts to say that. And in fact, our experts came in and in detail with precision, you know, why what they did was was, you know, totally below um, what you'd expect, you know, for such a significant injury. 
Yeah. Um, one one thing we haven't really mentioned is uh, is Dr. Tholen. Um, you know, he wasn't just your average doctor. Um, he had been at the Mayo Clinic, uh, obviously a very prestigious uh, institution up there in Minnesota, and then um, you know, and, and had basically ridden, risen in his career to one of the top uh, plastic surgeons in Minnesota. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things I was just wondering, and obviously they must have done great, but uh, you know, we all know how important it is that your clients do understand. How did Dr. Tholen and, and his wife do, you know, on direct and under cross-examination? Well, they did great. Um, and, and the reason they did, they did great is they just told the truth, you know, and, you know, just completely unimpeached on cross-examination and we just took it step by step and it was going to be the, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And it was the, you know, like we do in all trials, the good, the bad, everything in between. And we just uh, went through exactly kind of the circumstances he was in, what was going on in his mind. Um, and I did, I did sense that as system America was, was going to kind of attack him and attack his wife hard, you know, for second guessing decisions they made um, and trying you know, take the focus off of them and, and put it on, on the Tholans. Um, and so I think, you know, one of our strategies was to, we struggled a lot with, you know, who was going to be our first witness. Um, and I think conventional wisdom would, would have been, you know, Dick or Sammy, um, because they kind of lived through it and, and they would be able to paint at least the, the closest full picture. But, you know, we didn't really get, we couldn't get into all the bad stuff of Assist America, you know, through them. And a lot of the Assist America witnesses, uh, we couldn't get to show up at trial because they're no longer employed there. Um, and so we're, we ultimately settled on um, our, our lead expert and we kind of went all in with him. And, and he just, he laid out, you know, the, the timeline, he laid out the medicine, he laid out the conclusions. And, um, and then we, you know, we played some depots of the adverse witnesses, um, and, you know, got some of the admissions that we, we had and had talked about. And by the time that happened, um, we then called, um, Dick and Sammy, you know, kind of as sort of the, the third, fourth witnesses in the case. And I think that, uh, that just gave them a little bit extra protection, um, also, and it also kind of gave them a sense of what the trial is going to be like, you know, trials are even for, you know, sophisticated parties, you know, if you haven't been, been through one, it's a new experience. And so um, I think that was important. And then kind of, as I mentioned up front, you know, we just stressed throughout the case and, and really this came from our experts, you know, and, and we obviously work with experts in all our cases as, as you guys do. And you, you get a lot of different types of experts um, to, to testify, but, Man, our, every single expert, and we had a deep roster, just felt had a, a real visceral reaction to this case and had really strong opinions about kind of the medicine, about, you know, kind of how Dr. Thelen wasn't treated right. Um, and really, you know, that the outcome would have been different. And yeah. one of the, the strongest points that all of our experts made was, you know, Dick Thelen may have been a doctor, um, but again, he was a patient then. And, and really that it's against medical ethics to, you know, to, to expect that you're going to treat yourself. And it was, um, we just kind of took that off the table from the beginning to say, you know, you can't, you can't second guess anything that, you know, someone in a, a really intense injury, tragic situation is going through. Um, when in fact, it's someone else's job to, 
to both give medical care or evaluate the medical care you're getting. Yeah. Um, I, I want to make sure that we talk about damages. Um, and one of the things, oh, were you I actually, yeah, I, I, I do want to move to damages, but I did want to hit on one thing and just get your thoughts on it. it talk about this, um, case study that, oh, um, oh yes. Oh my that, gosh. That Assist America put on their website, um, about where, where somebody had the, uh, had the idea, idea to write about, Dr. Tholen's uh, case on their, is this, in, I don't know if it's a newsletter or on their website, but somebody had the idea of using this as sort of a marketing piece and to, um, and to put it on their website. Talk about that, you know, that case study and then what you found out about whose decision it was and why they did that. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> I was preparing for uh, the deposition of that vice president um, that, that you mentioned um, a moment ago. And again, I, one of my, my team members, one of my paralegals was doing some, some research into him trying to make sure my, my kit was ready to go. And she's like, Patrick, you got to see this. And, and she's the one that stumbled across this, this um, article that they had published in a trade journal. Um, and basically the theme of the article was um, the risk of, of premature evacuation or pre premature transport. And Assist, you know, the, the author at Assist America had kind of walked through kind of why people shouldn't rush to, to, to want to leave a foreign country and get back home because it can lead to more injuries. And then they had a blowout of a, a case study. And it was purported to be, you know, anonymized by talking about, you know, they didn't have anyone's name in it, but it was a older middle-aged, you know, male from the Midwest in Mexico who went zip lining and had a traumatic knee dislocation and it ended up with an amputation. So um, it, it wasn't too hard to connect the dots who this is about. And what was problematic about it was it, it just didn't line up with the facts of, of the evidence. It didn't line up, you know, the, 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 there are statements in that article about Dr. Tholen's case and, and they did, you know, admit under oath that it, it was about his case, of course, because they had to. Um, but it kind of put Assist America in this really good light and it put the Tholins in a really bad light. It, mm -hmm. They were saying they were doing things they didn't do. And they were saying things that, uh, that Dick and Sammy did that they didn't do. Um, in fact, the, the last sentence of it says that um, Sammy called them or, you know, the member's wife called them and admitted that the amputation was caused by loss of circulation from their decision to get on an airplane. And we, again, we had that audio call and that audio call is one of the most powerful pieces of evidence we had in the, in the trial, because you, this was the same day that Sammy learned her husband was going to lose his leg. And she called, she called to ask for an apology. Um, and she ended the call by saying, you know, next time someone calls, go get them, go get them. That's what you say you're going to do. And so not only was that, you know, you, it's one of those, you know, kind of original pieces of evidence that you, you it just captivates you when you listen to it. Um, so not only is it that powerful, but then to contrast it with a statement that is just categorically untrue, um, you know, really did not, um, did not help assist America um, at all in the trial. And, um, you, you know, I think Steve, what you were alluding to, you know, one of the other admissions we were able to, to get on cross 
was that um, the vice president, you know, consulted with his marketing department when they put that together. So it was, it was a bad look. Well, and just, you know, my, my sort of jaded perspective as a trial lawyer, you know, we know, we all know that juries aren't supposed to look at uh, the internet and they're instructed not to do that, but we all know that they probably do, or at least a few of them do. And by planting a story like this, you know, uh, And a juror decides to go do their own research and then all of a sudden they stumble across the story. And then next thing you know, they're in the jury room saying, I know the evidence was this, but, you know, here's a case that says what really happened. And, you know, it's just it's completely I mean, I I could see you using this in, in, you know, not only your liability case, but also in your punitive damages case, Um, you know, just of of how they mischaracterized, uh, you know, what happened in this case and what they did, you know, and tried to make themselves out to look like heroes. Um, And and I I guess we should also mention, so uh, separate from this action, um, you represent the Tholins in a in a defamation case against Assist America because of this case study. Is that right? That's right. You know, so when we discovered that article, you know, it wasn't produced to us in discovery. We discovered it on our own. Um, the case, the, the the personal injury case, had already been in the middle of the the pretrial period. So we didn't want to amend the, the case to add a new claim. You know, the deadline to amend the pleadings had already passed. We'd just gone through that whole punitive damages battle, um, and it was a battle. So um, we filed a separate suit, and it, it took on a life of its own, um, another interesting legal issue. So the case was originally dismissed on a Rule 12 motion um, because there was sort of a, an, an issue over, you know, whether um, this sufficiently, you know, related to or was about the Tholins, and, you know, whether we could establish that up front in the pleadings. And so the case was dismissed originally. It went up to the Eighth Circuit. The Eighth Circuit reversed, and then you know sent back down. And um, and and yeah, the case ultimately um, was by based on COVID. There were so many delays. You know, the, the trial was delayed about five times because it was, the first trial was going to be in June of 2020, and then it just got rescheduled every two months. And um, and man, um, it wasn't until obviously November. Of of 2021, we got it, got it going, um, really to the credit of the court, um, to, to be able to conduct the trial under those circumstances. But, um, but the case, you know, originally was going to be then consolidated on remand and, and then assist America was the one that asked to to have it separated out after they originally wanted it in the case. And, um, evidence still came in even after it was bifurcated, um, second time. And yes, Steve, to your point, it was, you know, certainly a a big point of of closing on punitive damages was this is how they reacted to it. Yeah. Um, What was I going to say? Oh, um, one of the things that I I noticed from your PowerPoint that I thought was so great in in terms of damages um, and really, you know, helping paint this sort of before and after picture. And and obviously the jury actually gets to, you know, got to hear from, from Dick and Sammy, but um, you had this, you know, you, you did this thing where you had this list of all, of all the different things, the ways that Dick's life had changed that all these, uh, all these things that he used to be able to do that he couldn't do anymore. And, and just things that, a lot of them might be obvious, might not be obvious, but it, but I thought it was really powerful. And it's either the next slide um, or the slide after that, 
where you've got this perfect picture of him throwing up, but maybe is that a grandchild throwing a grandchild up in the air, like midair? Yeah. Before the, before the accident. And yeah, if you talk about a, a, a picture's worth a thousand words, um, you know, and, and you really want to talk about, um, you know, what valuing the harm is, is like, it's moments like that, that he's never going to get back. And, um, you know, I think on the, on the list that you mentioned, Yvonne, you know, it was really a um, kind of a learning lesson for me and as a lawyer, you know, just to step back. And it, I think as lawyers, we want to always jump to, you know, figuring out what the answer is and, and figuring out what our argument's going to be. Um, but, you know, my, for myself, you know, I, I have no background or experience what it's like to be kind of in, in dictal circumstances. And, um, you know, the case went on for four years and I had the, the privilege and pleasure to get to know him real well. And, and we spent a lot of time together and we just had a lot of really candid conversations about how, how little things in his life are different in addition to the big things. And, and that was really the, the main point of the list. And I know lawyers have a, a lot of different ways to do it. Um, I, I'm not sure mine was as creative as some of them I've heard on the show. But the, the point was just really to, to just be straight up with the jury that, look, his life's changed a million different ways every day um, from big and small. And in fact, I think, you know, one of the most powerful points of his testimony was we had a lunch break and he came out, came back um, and I was able to get him to step off the stand into the well of the courtroom. And he demonstrated what life was like, you know, kind of in the morning, you know, in terms of taking the prosthetic off, showing the jury all the components of the prosthetic, you know, problems that can arise with it. And um, it, it was really um, just a moving, you know, part of the trials completely unscripted. Um, it was just, you know, Dick be candid up there and, and kind of um, teach the jury a little bit about everything you go to go through um yeah. because it's, it's um prosthetic in in your amputation did you um I, since this was federal court i don't know did you get a chance to talk with the jurors afterwards about what affected them or what they thought about the trial or anything yeah we, we have not done that um we haven't been prohibited necessarily from doing so but um but we haven't we haven't done that at this time yet did you have a an, an in-person jury, a mass jury, or um, or what was the COVID setup? Yeah, the, so the COVID setup was was really intense. And again, all the credit to the the court and the court staff. Um, it, you know, it, it may have been the the first civil trial in the the District of Minnesota in our federal court um, since COVID. Um, our judge and in our court has has done a number of criminal trials. I know. And, and really, um, you know, both the judge and, and their staff, just a Herculean effort to, to make sure, um, you know, the wheels of justice continue and that it's done safely. And so there was definitely a lot of plexiglass, uh, you know, plexiglass at, uh, <laughs> at council table, plexiglass with the witness um, at the lectern. And you kind of you know, clean up each, each day with, with wiping down podiums and, and, and things like that. But yeah, everyone wore a mask unless it was the lawyer or the witness was had a speaking role. Um, and um, I will say that was one of the more challenging parts of closing argument is just in terms of reading the jury, you know, because everyone's masked. Mm -hmm. 
you, you can make eye contact, but you, you don't get any facial expressions. And so it was, it was definitely a unique experience there, you know, trying to, trying to sense if, if people are with you or against you right. or, or listening to you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, did you, did you focus group the case at all? We did an internal focus group at the firm. So, um, you know, one, one sort of, um, great resource we have here in Minneapolis is we have a, a, a full, um, mock courtroom and it's, it's fully functional at just the same way any federal court room would be across the country. And we use that both for our younger lawyers. We have a Robbins Kaplan trial Academy that we're proud of in terms of kind of, um, developing the next generation of trial lawyers. And then of course, you know, we can host our own focus groups and mock trials. And we got a, we have an absolute kind of top-notch trial consulting group, you know, in, in internal to the firm. And um, we did a, a focus group. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Patrick, this has been just a, a, a great conversation, a lot of great tips and a really fascinating case. And um, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about Tholen versus Assist America, Inc., uh, which was tried in November of 2021 at the uh, U.S. District Court of Minnesota, uh, resulting in a total verdict of uh, $27,882,000 and some change. Um, and, and Patrick, I just wanted to ask, is there anything that you want to make sure our listeners know about this trial that we didn't have a chance to talk about? Not other than I think the jury got it right. You know, I mean, obviously, the, you folks and, and the listeners are, are already big proponents of the jury system. But, um, you know, I, I just it, I remember at the at sitting back and, and hearing our judge kind of swear in the the um, the, the marshal that was going to guard, you know, the, the jury room. And it was just, it really stood out to just how awesome it is, you know, what our system of justice is and to, to ask people to come off the street and decide, you know, civil disputes, criminal disputes, what have you. Um, it just is, it never ceases to amaze me. And, you know, I think this case, um, is just another great example of, um, you know, vindication of that system. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, obviously something that's very near and dear to our hearts and extremely important to uh, to the justice system. Um, but uh, but just great work. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Patrick. Uh, I want to remind everybody we've been talking to uh, Patrick Ahrens, uh partner at Robbins Kaplan uh, LLP in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And you can look up Patrick at RobbinsKaplan.com. That's R-O-B-I-N-S-K-A-P-L-A-N.com. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, guys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, 
or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.